Welcome to Hookup Horror Stories. This podcast contains topics that may not be suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This includes things like domestic violence, sexual assault, and sexuality. They are intended to be educational in nature, but either way, a trigger warning is in place. Listener discretion is advised. You know, you're like, oh, well, you know, when this is over, I can get back to X. You know, oh, when this treatment is over, I can go do, you know, X that I used to do. You know, and th there's a lot of that because you're you're romanticizing the life that you had before because it's gone. And the one that you're living at the moment is not great um, and is terrifying, in fact, in, in a lot of ways. But the slide in that pussy is a homicide. Welcome to Hookup Horror Stories, the podcast where we spill the tea on sex and dating. I'm Demi Wilde, your resident sexual deviant. And this week, I've got a very extra special guest deviant. I've got actor, singer, author of the book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses, Edward Miskey. Yay. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. I'm excited to be had. I don't find myself on a whole lot of like LGBTQ podcasts which i think is very strange because i feel like we all have one right <laughs> right so it's kind of it's nice to be like branching out and and get away from like the heteronormativity of podcast world for a little bit well what i think is really interesting about my podcast is yeah it's like lgbt kind of centered but i have everyone on here i've had straight guys on here i've had you know um you know uh, porn stars i've had you know straight people all all every section of the sexual sexual spectrum the spectral i like that the spectral spectrum <laughs> the spectral spectrum <laughs> spectral spectrum ooh ooh wanna... ooh copyright trademark copyright <laughs> <laughs> well edward let's just like jump into it where are you from um i'm from central pennsylvania right in the heart of amish land um which is you know a very very um interesting kind of place to grow up for a queer person who is young and um wants more out of life than farmland <laughs> truly yeah it was uh it was wild i mean literally in front of our house down the road from our house was all farms and then behind us was like a gun shop <laughs> so that was the yeehaw that i grew up in I love that. Um, I actually kind of relate. I grew up kind of like Central Valley, California. So it's like all, I mean, it's called the breadbasket of of the world, basically, because we are, are the biggest um, producers of, of food and mm -hmm. grain and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of like produce, all kinds of veg, you know. Um, but yeah, like right behind my house, like growing up was total just country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I, it was. I think it was nice to grow up in in some ways. Like I wouldn't have traded the independence. You know, my parents were very good with like letting us ride our bikes around town, and like because the town was like twenty five hundred square uh, people, and 
how, how very very small amount of square mileage um you know you could ride for 15 minutes and be clear on the other side of town and come back you know so we we had that kind of independence and opportunities as kids growing up in that kind of environment and you know i think that really informed us as people growing up into adulthood that that like pennsylvania free living kind of you know mid 90s weird rules for kids no rules for kids kind of thing <laughs> Uh, it was great. There was a little playground down the street that we could go to, and we had friends around town that we'd ride bikes with. And there, we had belonged to the community pool, and we could drive, like ride our bikes up there and do all that. So it was, it was nice for that. And then once the teenage years hit, it was like, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. How was that for you? When did you come out? Ooh. Okay. So I came out at sixteen, and it wasn't necessarily by choice. Um, I had started to a little bit um with close friends or like one or two people that i had confided in um <clears throat> you know that were one of whom is still one of my best friends vanessa um we went to we've been i've known her since the third grade basically and uh what happened around that time is that i was friends with a person at the local college and we got connected because i was into music and i was into recording and i had recorded a demo with my dad and you know, I just wrapped it up and I was really interested in getting into a studio again. And he was in the recording program and he was not out, but he was gay. And I knew him through other people at the college and he was killed in a car accident. And that was devastating to me because obviously like I had a crush on him as well. And and we kind of, um, you know, like it was a really weird place to be where I wasn't fully out, but I was, and neither was he, but I was dealing with all of that. And it was, it was a mess, but I, conf I went to my religion teacher cause I was friends with her daughter. I went to a Catholic school <laughs> sidebar. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. There's the bomb to drop. And uh, you know, I was speaking with her about it and she just, out she invited me to her house. Basically. She was like, if you want to come over and talk, you're welcome to whatever small town, you know, that wasn't weird. And I went over and, we had lunch and she sat me down and she was like, you know, halfway into the conversation, she interrupted me and she was like, was this person a homosexual? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, mm -hmm, I thought so. Um, where are you maybe a homosexual? And I was like, uh-huh. Yes. And she told me right there in her living room on her sofa that he was taken away from me before he was able to enter into a sinful relationship. Oh my God. And I immediately got up and I was like, yeah, that ain't it. And I like just left. I drove out and I was so pissed. I cried all the way home. I was so mad. And then the following Monday, I think that was a Saturday, the following Monday during class, my best friend runs across the hall to me. She's like, you're never going to believe what this what the teacher just said to everyone and she told me that basically she let everyone know to pray for me because i was struggling with homosexuality the whole class and so i cornered her in um her office i asked to see her in her office and um i reminded her that she drove me to her daughter's college to visit her and also a guy that i was interested in and on the way she picked up cases of beer for her 19 year old daughter and i was like wouldn't it be horrifying if anyone found out that you were bringing alcohol to your underage daughter and so then she started crying and she apologized and i was like you're not sorry you're sorry you got caught and i just walked yeah. out and i and i let her just think that i was going to tell everyone 
And how old so, are you at this, at this time? I was six, 16. I didn't, I didn't have balls like that when I was 16. <laughs> I didn't have a choice, I don't think. It was also because, again, like the independence that I had as a kid gave gave me a very good sense of self to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, aside of hiding because I was gay. But now that everyone knew, it was like the one thing that was holding me back. And now that everyone knew, it was like, fuck all this. And it Who was cares? the most powerful yeah. I've ever felt. Because after I told her that, I could do whatever I wanted. Because I could hang that over her head as as much as I could. And I just tried, I just got away with everything. I didn't care anymore. Like, my grades went down because I was like, none of this matters. All of you people are trash. I'm out. And uh, maybe that was like a coping mechanism or dis, or uh, disassociating or something like that. All the um, above. <laughs> yeah, all the above. But, you know, it was a really shitty experience, but it ended up being great in the end because it forced me to be like who I was and it it kind of pushed me on a trajectory that led me to leaving Pennsylvania and moving to New York and like doing all the things that I've always wanted to do. But again, in that moment, I've never felt so powerful. Right. That's actually really powerful. Like to actually experience that because when you do actually come out, it is kind of like ripping off a bandaid of sorts. Like it's like, Oh, well the worst part's over. Like my secret out. Right. Who cares? Now what do you got on me? <laughs> the Who only cares? thing I was ever teased for is now on the table. So it was like, all right, cool. Well, what do you got? What else you got? Nothing. That's what I thought. And there is something to be said as well for like teachers. Not all teachers are terrible, but the ones that are, are really terrible. Yeah. And, you know, there is a code of ethics. I believe when you are a teacher, like you're not supposed to just out people you're not supposed to just if someone if a student tells you something in secret you don't tell everybody about it that's crazy but i think there's a thing where people who have a religious belief that that doesn't matter like real human beings don't matter because it's like this thing in your belief system that makes you want to just be shitty yeah well it's it's the um it's that want to be better than other people. And so yeah. by being the most religious, the most pious of them all, like you are you are above everyone, despite the fact that any every part of Christianity or Catholicism or whatever umbrella you want to put that under says the opposite. You know, like you see these people screaming in the streets and preaching to everyone and, and trying to force their religion upon everyone. But there's literally a, a section of the Bible that talks about just praying quietly in your room and, and don't go out and yell it to everyone else. Do it to yourself. And like, no one listens to that part. <laughs> like, no, they just listen to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is a parable and a fable and it's all made up. <laughs> it's all a fable. It's all a made up story made it by man who cares yeah to keep power and control it's it's it it makes me laugh now yeah truly needless to say i am no longer religious as i was as a kid (laughs) you're not (laughs) just kidding (laughs) i'm actually a priest low down (laughs) i do know some some gay priests but you know that's a a different story yeah um so I, you mentioned New York earlier. You are now living in New York. When did you move mm-hmm. to New York? And when did music and musical theater come into your life? So music and musical theater have been my whole life. I mean, my dad was a musician, is a musician. My mom plays piano. Like, my dad's a singer-songwriter. We had walls and walls and walls of records that I would go through as a kid. And um, 
we had a piano in the house that I taught myself how to play on and I would sing in choirs and do things on my own. And, you know, I was, I, it's always been music. Like there's been nothing else. That's like the one constant that I have in my life. And, um, you know, that, that informed a lot of what I wanted to do. You know, it was the first time I saw a Broadway show, I was 13 or 14 and it was like, oh, wow, there are people in places that are getting paid to do this. Like, wow, I could, I, I can do this too. And so from that point on, I mean, that ruined me. My parents should have never, but <laughs> you know, we came to New York, we saw a Broadway show. And from that point on, I was like, I don't need school. I just want to <laughs> sing on a stage. <laughs> um, you know, and I was a really bright kid and I had great grades. But after that, it was just, you know, between that and the high school experience and everything else, I was like, ah, fuck it. Like, I don't need to be here. This isn't real. Right. And, um, you know, I focused on other things and that's what led me to New York. So I made the decision not to go to college. I left high school, barely graduated by the skin of my teeth. And I moved to New York and I've been here ever since 18 years. Amazing. What um, productions have you been in? Oh my God, so many. Um, none on Broadway. <laughs> um, I've had a really, really strange journey with the musical theater side of things. Um, you know, the the original songwriting kind of thing is on my own terms. You know, I wish I would have had access to the technology and social media component that we have access to now. When I was 19, I was just talking about this the other day. Like if I had a way to be able to afford and have have in my apartment the things that I have access to now back then, like there's so many there, things would have been so different. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've done the the first broadway show i ever saw was 42nd street and i was got i got to do that in 2015 wow. um in like the star role and it was it just felt like this great full circle moment and i just loved it i'm still friends with some of the people that i was in that show with and you know it was a dream and i i've gotten so i've been so lucky to do so many shows i loved i got to do into the woods on nantucket i got to do uh bonnie and clyde in kentucky like you know i got to do white christmas in california i got to do hairspray twice like wow. i've done a lot of shows but they've all been around the country which is the gag about being an actor in new york like most of the time you're you're, you're auditioning <laughs> you're auditioning to go work somewhere else and it's probably a place that you, that is similar to the place that you left <laughs> um uh here's a weird question um is musical theater a chronic illness <laughs> it is yes that's kind of the that's kind of the play on the the title of the book you know my friend alex came up with the title of the book i can't take full credit for that but it totally is a chronic illness um you know i've been i've been diseased with it since i was a kid you know like the first couple <laughs> cast recordings that my aunt bought us my grandma got us and movie musicals of course like mary poppins you know was a big house favorite that we'd watch almost every day and uh my poor parents you know like <laughs> like how many times do they need to hear that movie right um but you know it it really is and it it's something that you're kind of in a way sick with and how you look at that illness is kind of up to you you know at some point it was like give me more of this if this is if this is wrong i don't want to be right kind of thing and as I've gotten older, I've I've had enough experiences um, on the business side of things to be like, you know, like, I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm going to step back and this will be on my terms from here on out. And I just haven't felt like being on terms with it. You know, it's it's a weird business. It's a weird it's in a weird place right now, uh, post pandemic. And, you know, I still love it. I still love going to the theater. I still like consuming shows and 
listening to it and singing it and everything else. But as far as like being a participant in that facet of the industry right now, like that's that's part of the chronic illness that I'm not I'm not with anymore. <laughs> I unfortunately have never caught the musical theater bug. I I for, I, for better I, or worse, <laughs> for better or worse. I was in theater for like many years, but I finally tried out for one play and I ended up not being able to to go into it because my grades were terrible. Um, <laughs> but, relatable content, <laughs> relatable content. But I I was just never like big on music, musical theater per se. Like I like some musicals. Like I love Hedwig. Like I have a Hedwig tattoo. Um, So good. Oh my God. Yes. Origin of love. Yeah. I have, you know, there's aspects of musical theater that I love, you know, Rocky horror, of course. And, you know, Mm -hmm. things like, things like that. But I, I never was like, Oh, the Chicago gay or like whatever. And, and, you know, wanted to go see every musical theater thing ever. I I just never caught the bug. I, well, and I don't think I ever got that far with it. I was never like feverishly defending a show or anything. Like, <laughs> I I view it as a beautiful thing that people do and come together, and and you become a unit, and the unity of that is what I like. Um, you know, I could go see a show and it could be absolutely crap, but when people come out for a curtain call and take their bows, like that's the part that gets me emotional. I think that the the camaraderie of building that together is the part of it that I like the most and and kind of being a cog in the wheel of this big, beautiful cuckoo clock that's going off like from the time the curtain comes down until it's over. And that that was the part that I was addicted to. Wasn't necessarily like taking the bow, but having that feeling of like, we're all moving in symbiosis together to create one thing. Yeah, that is pretty cool, actually. Whenever I was able to do plays and stuff, that was kind of like, oh, we're all like one giant organism. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's one giant organism. And every time that I was about to do a show, it was it, and like the curtain was about to happen. I really genuinely like would picture a cuckoo clock, you know, like those old wooden ones that like it goes off and all the things like move around and mm-hmm. go in and out of doors and up and down different things. Like that's what a show is to me. It was just like this crazy predetermined cycle that people in front of you are doing and um you know when it's over then the the doors close and you wait for the next you wait for the next one exactly are there any musical theater songs that can go on a sex playlist (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely um tons of them um but before we get into that i do want to point out something yeah with with the types of musicals that you like with rocky horror and hedwig and all that there's one and i like i should be getting paid at this point to be promoting (laughs) this show (laughs) um it was the last thing i saw before shut down in 2020 and they are now finally years later going to edinburgh to do the music theater musical theater festival in ireland and um ireland scotland edinburgh ireland I don't know. Or <laughs> one of those countries. <laughs> I'm smart. And um, in Scotland. Yes. Okay, great. So Scotland. Great. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's the geography. bourbon headache. I'm, I'm going to blame We're it on the, We're the bourbon headache. <laughs> Math and geography, not our right. forte. I know. Up forte. and down, and that's it. Um. So this show's called Oscar at the Crown, and it is very much like something that I think you would really, really like. It's Oscar it's this... Crown. um. The premise is like Julie from the OC and Andy Cohen start the end of the world. 
basically the crumbling of society is their fault. What? <laughs> it's really, it's quite. Specifically them? Specifically them, yes. <laughs> They're not characters in the show, but they talk about them. And Julie has become this god goddess to them. And uh, because she predicted the end of the world, so they're always looking to her for advice, and and they watch, they watch the OC for like you know wisdom, and they like do Oscar Wilde plays, and it's it's kind of wild and crazy. But the music is by this guy named Andrew Barrett Cox, and I, I look at the work that he does, and he's part of the reason why I think like why I feel that if I had the access to technology that we have now when I was a teenager that I would have had a very similar path to his because he's just brilliant, absolutely incredible work that he has put together for this show and other pieces that he's done. And I look at him and I'm just like, oh God, I wish I could have been that when I was that age. But the music in this is so fun. It's like dance clubby kind of Berlin oh, cool. uh, influence. I think you'll really, really love it. I'm into that. Um, yeah, it's the song Julie itself is absolutely brilliant <laughs> it's on, on the, my car it's not on the sex playlist <laughs> it could be it's on my cardio playlist but... <laughs> <There you go. laughs> high energy fuck session <laughs> right like truly it's it's one of those but i don't know i mean it depends on the kind of i think it depends on the kind of sex you want to have you know like sure. i think of a show like city of angels which is psych Coleman, and it's very like jazzy kind of sultry there's this song called Lost and Found that's very Jessica Rabbit, like, you know, the dress falling off kind of thing that's very sexy. And then there's also, you know, like there's songs in American Psycho that are that you could absolutely, you know, have sex with. But it really just depends, for me at least, on the kind of sex you want to have. True. Very true. Now, there is something that very, you know, you wrote a whole book about this, but I, something very unique about you, and you are a sole survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. A very specific kind of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, yes. What is it? So non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a, is a type of blood cancer. It, it's your lymph, oh. lymph node system. It's your immune system. You have cancer of that. And so there's Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. And then there are tons of little different baby subsects under that. And the one that I had specifically, I think at the time was, I really need to look this up because I keep saying these numbers and I don't think they're right. But um, the at the time that I had it, which was 2011 into 2012, there were only, I think, 1,200 cases of this type of cancer reported worldwide ever. Wow. And so, like, they didn't have a plan. They had, like, some kind of protocol, but there had been no one on record that had lived very long after the fact or without a recurrence. And so what makes my case so interesting is that I lived through it. I'm over 10 years now, cancer-free, and I've never had a second go of it. Um, and that, to my knowledge, is still a unique experience. And um, for anyone nerdy enough to look this up, it was uh, rare enlarged B-cell Burkitt's-like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is like obviously sure. a mouthful. It was a whole <laughs> roller coaster ride <laughs> of all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, that's that's the that's the situation. So, okay, so you got this in 2011, 2012, or uh, you got the diagnosis. What did that mean for you? Like, what happened afterwards? Like, did you just say, like, fuck it? Like, or did you get back to work? Like, I remember when I got diagnosed with HIV, I just got straight to work. I was like, okay, what do I need to do? Right. And I was just like, you know, focus. But then, like, later on, I got a little crazy in the head, you know? <laughs> well, and I think, I think, 
to a degree it's it's relatable in the sense that it's a big change in trauma that happens to you for whatever reason and i feel like the word trauma is so over overused and whatever but like it it is what it is like that's what that is and you know I think anytime you have to face something that kind of pulls you back down to earth and makes you face a mortality in any kind of way, whatever that is, um, it's going to fuck with you because it changes your perspective on everything. And one of the things that I talk about so often with my my experience with cancer is that like, you know, the person that you were before and during treatment is gone. Like that's, there's just no hope of getting back to that person. And that can be a really, really good thing. You know, you get to, to choose and change who you want to be and become. And, um, you know, like it, it does fuck with your head because you, you do have this shift where it's like, everyone I'm talking to is just pissing me off. Like you're just saying dumb shit. Everything that's coming out of your mouth is like, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And you go through that phase when I did when I first was out of the hospital and was told that I was cancer free, like everything everyone said to me was like, I'm you're just saying dumb, dumb shit. I don't need to listen to you. And it was really challenging because the friends that I had that were with me during that time, like fell on that spectrum where I was like, oh, shut the fuck up. And it wasn't because I was angry with them. It was because I was facing my own like shift Mm-hmm. of becoming a different person and trying to navigate so many things, you know, like the friendships you have, they change the f- relationships you have with your family. They change what you want to do for a career. Maybe that changes. Maybe you have different feelings about it. Um, You know, like money, like that, that whole perspective of things changes too. And conti- like, I, I'm going through another shift with that now too. Like, like we're always changing, but when you're forced to change like that, when something big like that happens to you, it happens in a very, very different way because you're not choosing to change and then you have to navigate what's around you. Right. Are you familiar with the podcast Dying for Sex? No, but it sounds like fun. <laughs> it's a great podcast. It's it's a tearjerker. I will warn you. Um, but I listened to the entire thing on a road trip to Las Vegas just back in February, and I was absolutely blown away by the story because um, Molly, who is the main character, and her best friend started this podcast when Molly was diagnosed with cancer. She was like stage four. She was like going downhill, but she ended up leaving her entire life and in pursuit of sexual pleasure because she was kind of in a dead-end marriage. She like really hadn't experienced life a whole lot. She, you know, just wanted to just have fun. So she ended up on this like crazy trek, like getting back in touch with her body, even after she had, you know, her breast, um, uh, the, the surgery to remove, you know, that surgery. Um, but you know, did you experience anything like that? Like, were, did you just went like hyperdrive, like after you were fine, like I'm out here fucking or like what happened afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so funny. I was actually just talking about this, like maybe two days ago. Um, yes and no. So I kind of did that during like that was the during treatment thing, which I should absolutely not have been doing, you know, like <laughs> chemo and radiation fucks your immune system up. Like I opened myself up to an entire world of problems that could have happened. Um, and thankfully, none of them did. But I certainly put myself in that position. And, you know, that was a self-sabotage thing where I was terrified. And I think part of that was like, I have not 
I have not, <laughs> I don't know if it's like, I've not fucked enough people yet, or I have not experienced enough sex at this point, which I absolutely had. I moved to New York at 18 with no parents. Like there was like, <laughs> shit, shit happened. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I think it was, um, I think it was a combination of holding, trying to hold on to the person that I was beforehand and just like, and trying to prove to myself that I was still pretty and desirable uh, but then there was also the component of that where I just wanted to not feel what I was feeling. And so that was the vehicle of, that I chose to try and like numb my reality. Sure. And I don't think it was a good or bad thing. I think it just was something that I decided to do. But the part that you're talking about with like kind of exploding after the fact of like this, I haven't done enough. I, I don't want to do things or I want to do more things because I'm not living the life I want to. I feel like we all go through a moment of that every couple of years where we're like, hang on a minute, I'm going through one right now. Um, but during that period of time, I just remember sitting in the hospital with my mom and being like, if this is it, then I am so disappointed in everything that I've not accomplished yet. And like, even the stuff that I have, like, that's not enough for me. Right. And what's kind of shit is like 10 years out, like it's still not enough for me. <laughs> and I've done a whole <laughs> lot more since then. Um, and so like, I totally understand where this, where this person is coming from in, in that sentiment where it's like, I haven't done enough and now I have this opportunity to do it. And so I'm just going to go do it a hundred percent full throttle. And, you know, people's level of privilege, income, access, et cetera, varies in, in determining how, to what degree you're able to do that. Um, you know, straight out the hospital and having not worked in almost two years, like I was not really in a place to do that. However, being in New York City and having so much access to so many things going on, whether that be sex or events or a career or whatever I wanted to do, um, you know, there were certainly opportunities that I created and were presented to me to be able to do whatever I wanted. And it's just, um, you know, it's just kind of like a dealer's choice situation i guess like you can deal with that how you want to or don't want to and there's no right or wrong answer and i fully support someone who's in a situation like that and and grabbing the bull by the horns so to speak and saying i want to know what it's like to do x and if that means blowing your life up and going off and like fucking your way across america more power to you girl like <laughs> do it <laughs> hit all 50 states <laughs> rank them <laughs> Well, what was interesting about her story is, number, well, you mentioned um, she had a really kind of funny anecdote in there. There was a lot of laughs in there as well, but um, she had a funny <laughs> anecdote about um, a, a gentleman caller who uh, wanted to drink her pee. And she allowed him to do so, but not realize that she was also like on some serious drugs and didn't realize like... <laughs> At the conversation time, was... I had with my doctor, how funny! <laughs> not the same, not the same, but it, it, you know, same region. Um, I I tried to have a sex conversation with my first oncologist, and they were obviously very uncomfortable with this conversation. But the initial thought was like, you have just had a massive amount of chemicals pumped into your body. Right. If you pump anything into anyone else's body, like that could cause some damage. Yeah. And like, why Why would anyone ever think that? So I'm sure she had like had the same thought where it was like, why would me peeing in and or on someone matter? 
<laughs> but when you're like in chemo, like it does. Because the first thing you notice when you start chemo is that your pee changes color. Like oh God. mine was orange. It was pink. It was like dark yellowy. It was and like not from dehydration, but because the color of the chemo itself. Yeah. Like there was one, I don't remember what it was called, but it w- literally made my pee turn bright pink. Yeah. I will say like also she mentions like at the end, she does kind of credit like, you know, having all this sex kind kind of because like when she was going through this particular type of cancer, I forget which one it is at this moment, but she like she felt like her body betrayed her. She felt like her body was just like, you know, completely shutting down and stuff. And so when she decided to do all this, it really allowed her to get back in touch with her body and to really kind of like, oh, wow, okay, well, this is what it feels like to, you know, have someone touch me or, you know, um, be physical in some way. It's it's a very great podcast. I highly suggest it to anyone who's interested in this. You should definitely listen to it too. No, I would love to. And I think I might actually reach out to them because that's a big conversation that I talk about in in the book, but also when I talk to other podcasters or, or press outlets or whatnot, like the conversation of sex as a cancer patient and then survivor is just not one that's really had often. Right. And, um, you know, it kind of sounds like she did this in in a very intentional and safe kind of way. Mm-hmm. Whereas like mine was self-sabotage. It was like, I'm just going <laughs> to fuck all, fuck all this. And I'm going to fuck all of this, <laughs> you know, like, um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, it varies per person. And I don't think that it, I think that there needs to be more conversation around it because, you know, you're, you're still a person, you're still a human who feels things. And despite the fact that you're being, you know, filled up with all kinds of different chemicals and and drugs and hormones and steroids and all that other shit to save your own life. Like you still have wants and needs. It's like the same as being hungry or thirsty, like, you know, thirsty, of course, but like, you know, you, you it's, there's no resources for that in a hospital setting. Like right. that's kind of something that you have to like crawl the corners of the internet to find, you know, and, and there is certainly, you know, and this might be a good segue into the the horror hookup situation but like there's certainly people out there who fetishize people who are hospital bound or who specifically have cancer or who are disabled in some way like there there are fetishes for that and i found that out in a not great way um (laughs) but it's you know you know something something for everybody (laughs) i need to talk to my friend uh dr victoria hartman about that she is a fetishologist she's very into oh i would love to hear what she has to say scholar yeah she knows all about philias and all that stuff so um we do have to take a quick break but we will be right back great And we're back. I'm talking with Edward Miski, author of the book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Um, You know, we were having this conversation about, you know, dealing with cancer and kind of like that whole process as well. But like, how did you actually start to heal from this? You know, you kind of touched uh, touched on like self-sabotage and stuff. How did you start kind of like bouncing back from that? You know, I don't think there was ever a definitive moment that I can point to and be like, right there, that's when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fine was, then. <laughs> right. I was okay at this moment. Um, <laughs> it's peaks and valleys, you know, it's not a ladder. And um, 
I think as much as we would all like to think that healing is a ladder, that it's like, okay, well, I'm better today than I was yesterday. It's not like we all know that there's ups and downs and I still have them. Um, You know, they're maybe now a little bit less related to living, uh, whether or not I was going to live or die, you know, like short of planning a funeral, you know, like that kind of thing. But, you know, we we all kind of have ups and down days and, and then you factor in maybe like neurodivergency or some kind of like depression or or anxiety disorder or something like of course we're all going to have peaks and valleys so i don't want to like impress upon anyone that like the healing journey from cancer is like an uphill climb that is Mm -hmm. just steady and straight straightforward you know it's definitely a lot more difficult than that and i think in the first place i probably did it in the wrong quote-unquote wrong way you know it's it was the choice I made, but I started working right away. I dove right back into work and I was like, I don't want to have to deal with any of this. And I actually started doing that about halfway through treatment. Um, the guy I was dating broke up with me. And so I started with, I started a, a company. I started an online magazine uh, that was for, specifically for tall men. It was a lifestyle and community-based uh, publication. It was really fun. And after a couple of months, I was getting brand deals with like Lanzen and L.L. Bean and and Bonobos and a bunch of other ones and it was wow. yeah it was it was tight I was like art directing photo shoots from a hospital bed on FaceTime <laughs> <laughs> oh it was like it was like no 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 put him over there okay now turn <laughs> it was like it was fun but it gave me something to do and I was writing all the time I would write articles it was weekly and then it went bi-weekly and we had a travel section that my friend Aurelio would write for because he's this tall Italian handsome man who lives in Brooklyn and has a travel agency. Um, you know, I had this this trainer from California who was like seven foot something who was like a bodybuilder. And so he would write about um, health and fitness for tall men and, and stuff like that, because it's different if you're tall versus when you're short. Like when you're short, you can pack muscle on real easy. When you're taller, it's a lot harder. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, it was just this big thing that I dove into and didn't have to think about anything else. It kept me busy. It kept me occupied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as soon as I was out of the hospital and was given the, the, your cancer free blessing, like as the second my hair grew back, I was like, I'm going to go back to work. And I called my old, my old employers and I was like, Hey, I'm back and I'm alive much to anyone's, you know, uh, dismay, but can I get back on a schedule? And I just buried myself in that. And it, it all felt wrong. You know, like I went right back to auditioning. I went right back to everything that I knew before. And I tried to jam this life that I had prior into the present, like not taking into consideration that I'd changed. And like, I felt changed. I felt different. I felt like not the same, but still tried to do all the things that I had done before. And I really wish that I would have had the, uh, I guess, cognizance at the time to just be like, stop, you're allowed to be different. You don't have to go back into all of that. Right. Yeah. It's almost like when you are, when you go through like a traumatic experience like that, you wind up like almost it feels like maybe you're running a bit from like what, what you're yeah. going through and you're not like really emotionally um, processing all that stuff as well. You want to get back to normalcy as soon as you can, but you're yeah, not normal. <laughs> no. And that's the thing the whole time you're just like, 
you know, you're like, oh, well, you know, when this is over, I can get back to X, you know, oh, when this treatment is over, I can go do, you know, X that I used to do, you know, and th there's a lot of that because you're you're romanticizing the life that you had before because it's gone. And the one that you're living at the moment is not great um, and is terrifying, in fact, in, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, not I, I think if I if I would go back, I wouldn't change a thing from where I stand right now. But if I would go back, I would definitely be like, hey, it's OK to let go of some of this stuff and not worry about it. Um, because my basically my entire identity became work. Right. And I would just like audition, audition, audition and work and work and work. And it was an around the clock kind of thing. And I was super lucky. I worked a lot as an actor. I worked all over the country. And it was fun. And I had a lot of good times. There were a lot of bad times. Um, you know, again, things in the industry that like shouldn't be happening and were to me and to people around me. And it was one of the reasons why when I finally decided to kind of cut the cord, I didn't really feel anything. I was like, thank God. <laughs> except for <laughs> except for relief, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a really weird identity crisis, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to you are no longer who you were and you're just kind of like spit out and are like, great, go figure it out. Thank you. There's no rule book. There's no. No, because and there shouldn't be. It's going to be different for everybody. Yeah. But it's just it's just being self-aware enough to realize that, like, you are different and what was before does not have to be now. Right. Got to go through the process somehow. Somehow. All right. Well, I am ready to hear a story. What kind of oh juicy hookup horror stories do you have? I mean, <laughs> there's so many. I mean, like I said, I moved to New York at 18 with no parents and lived by myself. So there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of stuff going on, but I'm trying to and think we're of like, gay. I think when we hook up with people, it's particularly, um, it can be particularly tumultuous. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of moving parts that can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a bunch of them. I think the first uh, the first one that comes to mind that's more on subject on topic here is like when I was in the middle of it all, it was awful. Like I was bloated and I had no hair and I was weak and felt like shit. And of course, wasn't using those photos to get any anyone's attention. You know, I was absolutely using my like pre-cancer photos where I was 24 and hot and like in shape. And, you know, I was a killer. I was and killer. I will say anyone who's not watching the video, you do have a full head of hair. <laughs> uh, well, that's I paid for luxurious, that, but, but that's a full head of hair. <laughs> that's a different conversation, but I did pay for that. OK. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you can fly a turkey. <laughs> no, I mean, I very literally paid for it. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. One of the things that I well, I'll, I'll get back to this in a second, but one of the things I was afraid of it, with cancer was losing my hair. Yeah. And we looked at like wig and hair piece options and they were all terrible and whatnot. And so when I finally lost it, I was like a hat person. I like there's a whole journey that I talk about in the book about going to buy a hat mm -hmm. um, because I knew chemo was starting and my hair was going to fall out. So I bought these like fantastic hats that I found at H&M for like no, no no dollars and took them home and that, that they became my identity for like a year. Um, but when my hair started growing back, it was like beautiful and curly and luxurious. And then it started to go away because Aww. you don't get to keep like chemo does one of two things. It either kills your hair forever 
or it comes back with a vengeance and then kind of backs off a little bit. And so I was so afraid of that. And so I made sure that I was saving money up to have a hair transplant when I was ready to do it. So I've had two um, and I will likely have two more because I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason why I said Turkey is because people, the gays in West Hollywood, particularly they, they fly to Turkey to go get their hair transplants. I don't know why. Oh yes. Maybe it's It's because it's cheaper. Yeah. No, they do. And they, they like over there, they like shave your whole head and they put you in a hotel for free. And it's like, I think it's like four or $5,000 to do it. And uh, evidently they do a really good job. And then you come back. Mine did not cost that. It was (laughs) significantly more. (laughs) And I did not get a trip to Turkey, but yes, I have heard that. And I do know someone who went to do it. And when they realized that they were shaving their head, they were like, no, I'm out. Yeah. Um, because they didn't do that for me here. They didn't at all. They didn't shave my head at all. Wow. Yeah. But I'm a huge advocate for hair transplants. Everyone go get them. I think they're wonderful and don't be ashamed of it. It's it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to the um, story. So anyway, <laughs> back to me being back to me being 24 and hot and luring men into my apartment. Uh, this one guy came over and he was so attractive and I just like, I have this problem anyway, but like specifically in that moment, I was like, why in the world are you here right now? Like just stunning, stunning human Mm -hmm. being and seemed to be totally into it. And like towards the end, I was like, you're going to ask me to pay you, aren't you? And he didn't, that wasn't the situation, but he was into the fact that I was sick. He like had a thing for like being dominated by someone who was unwell uh it was like a level of submissiveness that i've never seen or heard of before um but that's kind of how he explained it to me but what what really made the whole thing even more uncomfortable is when it was all over you know obviously my entire body was atrophied and awful and i like finished and then collapsed and was out of breath and sweaty and disgusting and he was you know whatever he was very nice about it even though he blocked me afterwards but uh he i know that was insult to injury but he asked me how long i had been sick and i was like what are you talking about and i totally swept it under the rug like nothing was going on and he was just like oh my old roommate he like he looked like you and so i was just you know was wondering like how long you've been sick and i was like he can smell it on you <laughs> no no i I don't know but it, i mean i didn't look i didn't look well <laughs> like, oh that was, you know i didn't look even remotely close to the way i look now it, i was like you know pale and there's pictures of it in the book you can you can look at that but you know he he called it and he got off on it and at the same time wanted me to talk about it and i was like i please leave i wanted him to leave so fast like as as beautiful as he was i was like please get out get out get out get out there's the door why are you not walking out the door (laughs) oh my god um so that was pretty dramatic and then he blocked me afterwards which i was a little (laughs) miffed about uh but it was a really weird experience to like have this absolutely stunning human like be seemingly totally into what was happening and like that kind of gave me a sense of comfortability, I guess, with, I guess, within my own body at that time, similar to what you're talking about with the other woman's podcast, like feeling this sense of self in my body that I hadn't felt mm-hmm. since treatment happened. God damn it. He was good looking. <sighs> anyway. um, <laughs> It's something to be said about someone who just makes you feel good, you know? It, yeah. It, and that's what you need nice in that kind of period of time. Exactly. And, and whether it's for fetishized reasons or 
you know, some, some kink that you have or whatever. Cool. Like it really, it really helped me until it didn't, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, this is, this is really fun and I'm having a good time. And then as soon as it was over and questions were asked and I was kind of looked at in a different way, that's kind of when it came crashing down. I, I'm pretty sure that after he left, I just like curled up in a ball and cried. Cause like, what else were you, what else was I supposed to do? You know, it was like this huge range of emotion where it's like this really fucking hot dude, like wants me to fuck him. And I feel and look like shit, but for whatever reason he's into it. So like, let's go. And then after being like, why do you look like shit? <laughs> you know, like, what? And of course, like, you know, you like, I think it's it's worth saying whether this is learned behavior or generational something or other, but there is, I think, a lot to be said about looking ill. And I think that that can be pointed back to the Great Depression era. And I think that that can be t- turned and looked back at from the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. There was like this terrifying uh stigma of even looking remotely sick where you'd right. be like shunned and I was just watching a documentary about like the um the murders that happened in the early 90s that the last season of American Horror Story were based off of there's yeah. a documentary on Netflix that I was just looking at a couple of days ago um and they said very clearly like the the stigma of looking sick within the gay community runs deep and those who have who experienced that firsthand are now of a certain age where like it has it has passed been passed down enough that someone who is my age would have still been within that bracket of time of being terrified of looking sick and so then to have someone who you just had a very intimate experience with more intimate than that person could have even really known tell you that you look sick it was like climbing the walls like just get out of my apartment i don't want to talk about this anymore <laughs> that's crazy what I'm a little confused about. So you said you were using your pre-diagnosis photos to oh yeah for this guy, but he but he showed up and he just knew it and then he had the fetish. Um it just right. was a so coincidence that was, essentially. So that was part of the conversation. Like I'm a oh. big guy, I'm six four. Like like regardless of however d- like diminished my body is from anything else i'm always just going to be a refrigerator <laughs> and so like he was in a, he was in the subcategory that's what he was into and i was into whomever was into me and um <clears throat> he asked me uh it was it, it was a pretty quick exchange it wasn't like we were talking for ages and ages mm-hmm. and uh, i had a hat on when he got there so like he couldn't necessarily see that i was bald or didn't have any hair anywhere at all but you know it was dark and i you know tried to be strategic about angles and placement yeah (laughs) as the gays are we're very conscious of our angles um and it you know he just kind of it it was like a verbal thing where he was saying that he wanted to be domed and part of the sick conversation afterwards was that he was he like alluded to the fact that he was into it oh okay because he was like, like that he was like it doesn't sense. matter to me he was like it doesn't matter to me i actually kind of like it and i was like mm. so of course then later i looked it up and was like oh this is a thing <laughs> that's Ooh. wild what a weird yeah like <laughs> yeah i, I mean, had some guy- not not a weird we don't kink shame anybody's kink shames but that is a very strange it's a yeah it's strange and specific i also had someone try to hook up with me while i was at the hospital who worked at the hospital what <laughs> Yeah, it was someone I talked to on Grinder that was like, 
I'm down in the ER, but I could like come up to your room. And I was like, mm, I feel like if I get caught in this situation, that's not good for anybody here. <laughs> Especially you, you work here. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, But yeah, I mean, that happened a couple times, you know, and, and after a while, I started to be a little bit more forthcoming that I like was in a hospital and being treated instead of trying to like bamboozle someone to come over for my own, you know, whatever, even though it kind of worked out in a backwards kind of way for that guy. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, like the, I think the the sexual nature of that period of time and the conversation of how you look and how you feel about yourself is it's such a hard one to have, you yeah. know, because it's so dark and it's so deep seated because of the way that we perceive ourselves and then others perceive us and how we think they're perceiving us and what the actual reality is like. It's such a mind game to begin with. And then you throw a wrench in it like that. And it just doesn't help, you know? And I mean, I think if if I may tell a second story, Absolutely. Um, during radiation, I it was my first time doing radiation. I had four rounds of chemo that did not go well. None of it worked. And so they're like, okay, well, we're going to stop. I was supposed to do eight rounds. We stopped at four because it wasn't working. They figured, why, why do more? So they put me into radiation. I had that five days a week for a month. And the first week that I was there, I was kind of, I'm chatty and, you know, trying to get to know the people on the tech team, the radiation, the radio, the radiation techs. And, um, you know, they, they asked me like what I was doing before all of this started. And I was like, oh, I was an actor and blah, blah, blah. So the next time I came, I showed them a picture that it was down in the dungeon of the hospital. There was no cell phone service and no Wi-Fi because that would screw up the machines and everything else. But um, I came back and I showed them a picture on my phone of my old headshot. And both of them were like, oh, that's you? And it was like, ah, well, like just this horrible reminder that I have fallen so far from the way that I looked not six months ago that that was their reaction. And it hurt so bad um, that I went home and I fired up the apps again. And I just kind of like, I just invited anybody who wanted to, to come over and I told them nothing and I showed them nothing. And, you know, the lights again were down and low and I just like opened the door to my room and they came in and did whatever and left. And it just was like this, this like cycle of trying to make myself feel better. And if one didn't make me feel better, then maybe two would. And if that didn't, then maybe it was three or four. And it went on the whole night. I just like couldn't get to a point where I wanted to stop. It was like rage fucking. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a, it's, it starts, it's like a, a snake eating its own tail. It starts feeding itself. Yeah. I mean, truly, that's a great, that's a great uh, example of that example. That's not the right word, but you know, like <laughs> metaphor for that. Um, <laughs> what are words? Um, but yeah, it just, it just was like, it, it very much felt like, you know what it felt like? It's, I, I don't know if you saw the movie, The Whale. Uh, with Brendan Fraser. I wanted to. <laughs> I only just Dark, saw it. I, I avoided it because I was like, this is going to make me feel things I don't want to feel. Mm -hmm. But um, the yeah, Inwood Film... Said that too. Yeah, yeah. The Inwood Film Festival that's up here in Manhattan, Um, they had a special event with the guy who wrote the play that the movie was based on. And they I learned that they essentially didn't change a word from the play and they just shot it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was Dan Aronofsky's kind of thing. But there's a scene in it where Brendan Fraser's character ha orders a pizza, two pizzas every night. 
And the delivery guy brings it and he leaves the money in the mailbox and then the delivery guy goes. And when he leaves, then he opens the door and he gets it and whatever, because he doesn't leave his house. Yeah. Apartment. And so this one particular night, um, he opens the door to get the pizza and the delivery guy is still standing there because he wants to see who this guy is. And the following scene... I just remember watching it and being like, I know that feeling. Mm. And basically what he does is he goes on this like rage spiral rampage of like, he's eating the pizza. He's putting two pieces together. He's opening the fridge and putting like ham and ranch dressing and more cheese on it. And he's just eating it and eating it and eating it until he throws up. And then he eats some more. And it's just like, not that specifically, but that feeling is exactly what that, night after my radiation appointment felt like yeah and it it just was like ham on the pizza with the ranch dressing (laughs) you know like do it until you make it makes you sick and then keep going and it's it was a a rage spiral like i was so angry that i had that this was happening to me i was so angry that i you know i blamed myself for not being able to keep the way that i looked up even though it was so out of my control Um, And I just felt so low and unattractive and unwanted. And, you know, that compounded with like growing up with body dysmorphia and being a big person as a kid and like, you know, thinking I was fat all through high school and then looking back at photos and being like, you're Skeletor. Um, And just like that whole dichotomy of how you feel about yourself and how that externally manifests itself. And in that movie, seeing that scene, that was the first time that I was able to see something that I could point to and be like, that is how that exact moment felt. Yeah. And just an, a tribute to Brendan Fraser for being such a fucking fantastic actor that that got across. Like, God bless shit. him for making that. In general, back. I'm here for the Brendan Fraser renaissance. We do have complicated <laughs> feelings about the fat suit. But I do I I don't know. (laughs) He is a a brilliant actor. He is, and as a as a big person, not like you know, not like that that size, but as a bigger person working in entertainment, like it it's so hard to walk that line, right? You know, and I don't want this to get into the weeds, but like hiring a person of that size to do something that demanding Mm. is could be considered a liability for the studio. What happens if that person has a real health problem on set? It's an interesting point. You know, like, do we want to see that kind of representation? Yes. Do people of all sizes deserve opportunities? Yes. But I think what we're realizing also, which is part of the SAG after strike right now, which I also don't want to get into the weeds too. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, um, it's a business and you have to weigh liability and risk. And if that is perceived to be a liability and a risk, then the studio heads who are looking to make the money are not going to take it. Very good point. Very good point. Well, we did anyway. get a little off topic, <laughs> but this Sorry. has been a lot to say. <laughs> we have a lot to say. I, I'm so happy we've had the, the chance to do this and to talk before I let you go. Would you like to play a game of red flags with me though? I love a good red flag. Let's do it. Okay. I did uh, tailor these to you, but basically I'm just going to give you a situation um, and then you just tell me if it's a red flag for you or not. You can elaborate if you would want to. Totally up to you. 
Okay. I thought you were going to say that you like tailored red flags for me based on our conversation. Like, no, I mean, like your red flag is this. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well, these are kind of, you know, red flags tailored to, you know, what I know about you. So I did do these before. I love that. Okay. Okay. Number one, they hate musicals. Well, I'm first of all, I'm going to say that they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe like a yellow flag. <laughs> you're full of shit and you know it. And this right, is right. You're lying. I'm taking you to the show right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this one is not so much. Ta- I, this is just a random one I picked up, but uh, they have a spitting fetish. Red flag. <laughs> Really? <laughs> no, I can't. I no. <laughs> I think like sometimes spitting can be hot, like in the moment. Sure. I mean, I've certainly I've I've encountered that. Um, and it's just, it's just not something that I want to do. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm I'm the I'm a kind of person that like I don't want you to feel. <sighs> I don't want to do anything that is is putting you down oh you know and like whether Aww. you're whether <laughs> i mean so <laughs> call me whatever but like i like to me that's like de- that's degrading in a way that i don't like and even if you're fetishizing it like that's cool do your thing but for me like i just i don't want to do that i'm not comfortable doing that oh that's that's kind of cute <laughs> such a dork <laughs> <laughs> okay um they have a portrait tattoo of helena helena bonham carter you know <laughs> these are so specific um i love helena bonham carter um i don't know if a portrait tattoo would be a red flag but it would raise an eyebrow so maybe a red flag maybe a red flag yeah maybe a red flag (laughs) maybe a yellow flag maybe like a very bright orange flag (laughs) like i would say i mean my favorite helena bottom carter is probably her from uh fight club and so like that that meme of her like with the cigarette i think that would be a good tattoo Is it, well, I think I think for the gays, it's like, is this a tattoo or is it a meme or a right. t-shirt? Like, maybe <laughs> let's make some decisions here. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, number four, they're from Yonkers. No. If I have to get on Metro North, it's not happening. <laughs> what is it? Okay, what what is Yonkers? What's the vibe? I've never been. Have you been? I've been through it. Um, okay. Upstate is just a different world you know it's like the suburbs and okay. you know like the vibe is off it's not yeah. off it's just different and it's not it's not for me okay <laughs> so i don't have to go <laughs> no <laughs> there's nothing to go there for <laughs> no not at all got it last but not least they are the second survivor of the specific non-hodgkin's lymphoma <laughs> <laughs> um I feel like you're asking me this because you want me to be like, I will kill them. I will hold this title. <laughs> <laughs> Giving like um, uh, drop dead gorgeous vibes. Um, I No, I don't think that's a red flag. I think that's great. I, there's There's got to be one out there. There's got to be a second out there. It's been a while. So <laughs> I applaud them. There can only be I, one. <laughs> <laughs> you will not outlive me. <laughs> 
No, I will say that was that is not a red flag. Okay, good. <laughs> Edward, this has been so much fun. I'm so happy we've got the chance to do this. Where can my listeners find you? Oh my God, everywhere. Um, I am on all the things at Edward Miskey. Um, the my main two platforms are Instagram and TikTok. Perfect. And then we can find your book. Barnes and Noble. If you're in New York City, it's at the Drama Bookshop on West 39th Street. Um, it's also in like 30 or 40 other online retailers. If you find it one place, you'll find it somewhere else. Amazing. And of course, you'll find links in the description down below. All this, all that will be there. Edward, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. A very special thank you to my guests for joining me in this week's episode. Check out the episode description for all of their information. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a comment and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll really help out the show. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel for video versions of this show and other content. You will find my blogs, The Deviant Diaries, and A Deviant's Guide to Sex, show notes, articles used, and Hookup Horror Stories official merch on my website at DimitriWild.com. You can also purchase both of my poetry books, Bitter Blue Pill, and Always Nothing in the Time of Champions from Amazon.com. Just search for Dimitri Wild. Oh, one last thing. Thank you for listening. Stay deviant. Remember, subscribing might not be worth it, but it's also not optional. So just do it. <laughs>